0: I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. The great section of Scripture. This past Friday evening, Suzanne and I were trying to get some things moved out from our place here in town out to Etheridge Mill Pond, and Kerez Goggins was helping me. Now, there's a great picture of Kerez, got this off the internet. And uh, he's actually written a song, and this is him singing that song at Central City Church in Macon. And Karez was helping me out, and we'd been loading things and lifting things and putting things where they belong for about two hours. And finally, there was a moment where I jumped off the tailgate of my old red truck and landed in the gravel and didn't fall down. And he was impressed by that, and he said, You know, Brother Garth, I hope that when I'm as old as you are... I didn't laugh, you know? <laughs> you know. I hope that when I'm as old as you are, I can lift things like you do and I can jump off of trucks like you do and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, he said, uh, 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 I didn't mean to call you old. <laughs> I said, That's all right. By comparison, when I compare myself to you, Karez, I am old. And I appreciate the fact that you're telling it like it is. Well, this morning, I want to tell it like it is with regard to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday is the Sunday during the Christian year, as I prayed a moment ago, when we really focus on what Christ did for us on the cross. And so this morning, that's what we're all about. In the next couple of Sundays, today, of course, with the death of Jesus, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what I want you to see on the day that we focus on the death of Christ. I want you to see this. Jesus demonstrates the greatest love by dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus demonstrates the greatest love by dying on the cross for our sins. That's a very simple concept. This morning's message is a very simple message, just three points. Let's begin with the first one. The dilemma of a loving God and sinful us. The Dilemma of a Loving God and Sinful Us. Now, as I was working this sermon out, and I hope you believe I do work these sermons out. I don't copy them from somewhere else, you know. We're working these sermons out every week. And as I'm working this sermon out, I'm I'm trying to figure out how I want to put this first point. And as I'm working it out, I'm thinking, well, it would really sound strong if I said, The Dilemma of a Loving God and Sinful Man but I got to thinking we live in a culture that is gender neutral and that might not be the right way to put it. Maybe I need to put it a different way. Maybe instead of being gender uh, with regard to masculine, I just need to make it gender neutral and make it sinful us. And so that's how I made it for you this morning so that I would not offend those of you who have very high expectations for gender neutrality from this pulpit. I want to make sure we get it right. But speaking, of course, of how people look at males and females, a funny thing happens when I'm working with children in their salvation. When I'm working with children in their salvation, the first thing I want to do is establish, help them establish in their own hearts, Their own personal sinfulness. For you see, you won't even think you need to be saved until you understand your own personal sinfulness. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standard in their lives. We'll look at that verse in just a little while today. But as we think of sinfulness, I have to define what sin is to the kids. And I'll say to them, well, you know, sin is anything that you do that's wrong, anything that you think that's wrong, anything that you say that's wrong. All of those things are sinful. And we sin by those sins that we do that we shouldn't do. Those are called the sins that we commit. But we also sin by those things that we should have done but did not do. And those are the sins that we, or things that we do through sinning by omission. And I always say to them, like, not doing your homework when you were supposed to. Or not doing, and that always gets their eyebrows to raise. You know, you know they're all guilty of that. And then, or, or not doing, you know, the chores you were supposed to do, something like that. And we get to that point where we finally establish the concept that we've all sinned and then I want to test it with them, okay? I want to make sure they understand it. And so the first thing I say is this, so we've all sinned, is that right? They say, that's right. Well, if if that's true, then tell me something, has your mother ever sinned? And oh, they look hurt, because normally mom's there with them in the room, dad's over on the side. Mom's there in the room. Has your mother ever sinned? And they look hurt, very wounded, that they're going to have to accuse their own mother of sinfulness. And it takes them a moment, but they finally kind of nod their head, yes. And I said, Well, if that's true, is it true that your father has ever sinned? And they don't even take a moment to hesitate. They said, Oh, yeah, big time. Let me tell you about what he did last night, okay? You know, it's that kind of thing. So, fellas, you ought to be thankful this morning that I've used sinful us, okay? Because that includes all of us, male and female. Of course, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 and verse 23 says, Now we know that whatever the Old Testament law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. Do you know what that means? No one will ever be able to stand before God and say, I'm not a sinner. No one will ever be able to stand before God and say, I'm not a sinner. I have never sinned. Our mouths are silenced by our own guilt. And then it says, And the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of our own sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard for our lives. How does a worm get into an apple. You say, "Pastor, what does that have to do with what we're talking about?" Well, you'll see in just a moment. How does a worm get into an apple? Most of us would think that the worm bores its way in from the outside of the apple, but that's not how it does it. You see, while the apple is still in blossom, while it's still flower, a worm will lay an egg or several eggs into that heart of that flower. And then as the fruit begins to develop, those eggs are in the heart of the apple. And as those eggs hatch, the worm eats its way back out of the apple. And the Bible says that's just like sin. Like that worm, sin begins in our hearts and works its way out of our our lives and our thoughts and our words and in our actions. So we've all sinned. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. In 1982, ABC Evening News reported an unusual work of modern art It was a chair affixed to a shotgun. It was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly down the gun barrel. The gun was loaded and set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next hundred years. And the amazing thing is that people waited in line to have their chance to sit in that chair for one minute and face that gun barrel hoping that it wasn't going to go off. Now... The truth is this, it was foolhardy, yet many people who would never dream of sitting in a chair with a loaded shotgun in front of them live a lifetime of gambling that they can get away with their sin. You see, even if you somehow escape the consequences of your sin, even if somehow you escape not sowing or not reaping what you have sown, The Bible tells us that sin has eternal consequences. The word death in Romans 6.23 doesn't just refer to physically dying. It also refers to spiritual separation from God forever. And remember that verse, Romans 6.23, because later in this message it will make sense to you why Christ had to die for us. And then secondly, this morning, we need to deal with the debt we could not pay. The debt we could not pay. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Powerless to do what? Powerless to pay the price of our own sin. Powerless to redeem ourselves from the penalty of our own sins. That's why Galatians chapter 2 verse 21. By the way, many of us know Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is the next verse. Notice what it says. I do not frustrate the grace of God. What is God's grace? God's grace is the love that sent Christ to the cross to die for you and me, because we could not atone for our own sins. We cannot pay the ransom price. We could not pay off our own sins. And so grace is God's way of saying, I'll do it for you through the lifeblood of my only Son. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, if we could have been good enough to save ourselves, then we should have been good enough to save ourselves, and Jesus Christ should not have had to die. But of course, we could not be good enough. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. As for you, and he's speaking to us all. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Some of the other translations say we were children destined for God's wrath. He goes on to say this, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Think about that for a moment. We've all broken God's law. A businessman, well known for his ruthlessness and dishonesty in business, once sent out to writer Mark Twain these words. He said, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And I want to stand atop Mount Sinai where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And I want to shout the Ten Commandments from the top of that mountain. And Mark Twain looked at him and said, I have a better idea. Why don't you stay home in Boston and just obey them? You know, one of our problems is that we cannot completely obey them. None of us has, none of us can completely keep the law of God. And because of that, we are by our very nature children destined for God's wrath. But notice that wonderful, that wonderful adversative conjunction, that little three-letter word, but. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love for us, saved us by His grace. Through the death of Christ. In the midst of our hopelessness. In the midst of our helplessness. There's a God in heaven who loves us so much that He sent His Son to this earth to die in our place on the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins. And all we have to do is swing open the door of our hearts to Him. And He comes into our lives. And He saves us. And He becomes the Lord of our lives. And all things become new. Not only do we have a new destination when we die, but we've got a new purpose in living the days of this life. And I encourage you, dear friend, if you've never opened your heart to Jesus Christ, to do that this morning on this wonderful Palm Sunday. That God would speak to you and that God would work within you. That brings us lastly to the death Jesus died for us. The death Jesus died for us. John chapter 15 verses 13 and 14 says, Greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Likewise, Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, people will sometimes die for loved ones. Even rarely, more rarely, will they die for their friends. But no one ever dies for an enemy. And because there is no comparison or illustration for what Christ has done in dying for those who were yet sinners, still sinners, still alienated from God, still at war with God, there's no comparison, there's no likeness of anyone who would ever die for people like us who were separated and alienated from God. Because of that... The death of Christ is the greatest love there's ever been. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was on an orphanage near an American Marine base in Vietnam. And one day the Viet Cong fired mortar shells into that orphanage, killing dozens of children and wounding many more. A boy named Kai had a seriously wounded friend who needed a blood transfusion. And Kai never had seen a blood transfusion, but this young man who was injured, had a very rare blood type, and Kai, very fortunately, shared that same blood type. So when he was asked if he would give blood to his little friend, he said, Yes, I'll be glad to. The American doctors all got together. They got the uh, transfusion ready to go and had all the tubes lined up, and it was going to be a direct transfusion directly from Kai into his friend because the situation was urgent. And as the blood began to flow from Kai to his friend, Kai began to whimper. The medics looked at him and said, son, does it hurt? He said, no, sir. A few moments later, he began to whimper again. And the medical personnel said, son, does it hurt? What's the matter? He said, no, sir, it doesn't hurt. Finally, they asked him, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And Kai said, when am I going to die? When am I going to die? You see, he thought that when you gave blood, you gave it all. Our Lord Jesus Christ did give it all. He gave His life's blood for you and for me. He died on that cross for you and for me. And this morning as we think about His death, we think about crucifixion as being that... Terrible form of punishment, capital punishment that was invented by the Phoenicians, but perfected into a brutal science by the Romans. So much so that they invented a new word for the pain that came from the cross. It is our English word excruciating, come from the Latin, meaning the pain that comes out of the cross. Crucifixion, of course, was the process of taking a five to seven inch nail, a spike and driving it into the wrist and affixing both wrists to a crossbeam that would then be hoisted up and affixed to the vertical beam embedded in the ground. And the feet would be taken and either tied to the cross, or they would be nailed with a single nail to the cross. And that was done not to help the victim, because crucifixion was that form of execution that they used only in the more drastic circumstances. And the Romans were seeking to keep captive peoples at bay by having their citizens watch a crucifixion. Crucifixion, then for was death not by loss of blood. It was death by asphyxiation. For as the crucifixion victim hung there in place, the only way he could exhale was to pull himself or push himself up. Inhaling was easy, but exhaling was very difficult. And at some point, that victim would not be able to push himself or pull himself up any longer, and he would suffocate. He would stop breathing. Typically, the Romans, those who were responsible for the execution, when they thought someone was dead, they took a hammer and they broke the legs. Sometimes they did that to make death come faster. In Jesus' case he was already dead 6 hours after the crucifixion began. But it was because of course he'd received that terrible scourging before he was ever crucified with that cat of nine tails by the expert Roman whipman and each of those tails had a piece of bone or metal or glass attached to it to shred his back. Most people say most medical people say that Jesus was already in critical condition when he went to the cross. Six hours later, he dies. The Roman soldiers had to make sure their crucifixion victims were dead. If they made a mistake, it would cost them their own life. And so they made sure they were dead. And the Roman soldiers took that spear and they thrust that spear into Jesus' chest and the Apostle John tells us that he saw blood and water flowing from the wound. Medical experts tell us that's a perfect description of a spear wound that would first Per, first permeate the pericardium, that uh, sack of viscous watery fluid that surrounds and lubricates the heart, and then on into the heart itself with the resultant louse of a mass of blood. And John says, I saw that happen to Jesus. They made sure He was dead. Dear friend, the Bible says He did all of that for me and for you. He loved us enough to go to that cross And there on that cross, he gave his life for me and you. And but simply knowing that or simply agreeing that it happened. You may say, I've been in church all my life. I've always believed that happened. But dear friend, simply knowing that it happened, simply agreeing that it happened is not enough. We must respond by believing in His sacrificial death for us and by opening the door of our hearts and receiving Jesus Christ into our lives as Savior and Lord. And my question for you is, have you ever done that? You say, preacher, how do you do that? It's as simple as praying a prayer for salvation that is prayed from a sincere heart, but will profoundly change your life. The Bible says... We will be complete when that happens. We'll become once again what God originally intended us to be when that happens. Paul calls it being a new creature in Christ. We'll be new people because Jesus Christ comes to live in our hearts. So this morning as we close, on this Palm Sunday morning, have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? That's the most important question anybody will ask you today. It's the most important question that anybody will ask you on any day. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time. We pray, Lord, that You would help us now to make the decisions that would please You. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Dear friend, if you've never had that moment in your life where you opened your heart to Christ, And said, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. And I come to you right now and ask Christ to come into my life. Please forgive me of my sins. Give me a home in heaven one day and help me to live that new life right now that only you can help me live. Dear friend, if you've never had that moment in your life, you can have it today. In just a moment, this whole group will stand and sing an invitation song. And as we sing, you can step out from behind one of those pews and walk down one of these aisles. And say, Pastor, I need to make that decision you were talking about. I've never done anything like that. I need to open my life to Christ. I need to become a Christian. I need to give Him my heart. I need to live for Him for the rest of my life. And I'd be delighted to help you do that. Maybe there are others who need to come and join this church family today. And maybe, of course, there are other things on people's hearts they need to deal with today. I don't know how God would lead you, but as He leads, you do what He tells you to do. His Spirit will work in your heart. You'll know what you need to do. Just obey him. As we stand together to sing our song of invitation, you come and do God's will for your life.
1: Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Songs arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Leave behind your regrets and mistakes The precious blood of Jesus
0: Christ. This is Mark. I'm asking you to be seated for a moment longer. We come now to that portion of our service in which we give uh, give physical description. We act out, if you will, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross by partaking of the bread and the juice. We think once again about the body of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it was bruised for us, lacerated for us, crucified for us. And we think about His blood as we partake of the juice. The blood by which the Bible says forgiveness is bought. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus shed that blood for you and for me. This morning, as we always say, If you know our Lord Jesus and you love Him, you are welcome at His table.